Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello listeners, Vass here with a new How To Academy podcast. We have a treat in store for you this week. Not only one, but two authorities on the world of work and the future of business. Adam Grant is the youngest ever tenured professor at the Wharton School and the author of best-selling books like Originals, Give and Take and Plan B. He was joined for a How To Academy livestream event by Tim Harford, the Financial Times columnist, BBC presenter, podcaster and author, who asked Adam to tell us about his new book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. If you enjoy this week's show, you are going to love the podcast series Secret Leaders, which draws out incredible stories and insights from founders of companies like Brewdog, HubSpot and Slack. You'll find it on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. But without further ado, here are Tim Harford and Adam Grant. Let me start where the book starts by asking you about the Man Gulch fire. A very interesting story, and it sets up some of the ideas you ought to explore in the book. Yeah, it's, it's really something that's haunted me since I first became an organizational psychologist. I think some people probably know Norman McLean's book, Young Men in Fire. But if you're not familiar with the story, there's this horrible wildfire that smoke jumpers got called in to go and fight back in the 1940s. And this is in, in Montana and the fire gets out of control. And all of a sudden they realize they have to run for their lives. And the foreman Wagner Dodge suddenly does something that nobody could make sense of. Instead of running to get away from the fire, he stops, he kneels down in the grass and he starts lighting matches. And the crew thinks, what, what in the world is going on? This guy's gone insane. You can't start a fire in the middle of a fire that you're probably not gonna survive if you don't run top speed. What is he doing? And so they just take off. What they don't realize is that Dodge has suddenly improvised the idea of building an escape fire. And the idea is that, that he can start a fire that will burn the grass around him. And then the wildfire will actually go right over him. And he lays down in the ashes of the fire and survives basically breathing face to face on the ground for 15 minutes. And I think what Dodge did was he redefined what intelligence is for me. Right? I thought about intelligence as the ability to think and learn. What we see Dodge doing, though, is showing the intelligence to rethink and unlearn. Right? He has to reimagine fire as a path to safety, not a source of danger. That's, I think, the first big moment of rethinking. And then the second one is that, tragically, two of the other firefighters make it out alive uh, and the rest don't survive. 
And it turns out that they're still carrying all of their heavy tools and equipment, the backpacks, the axes, the shovels, they didn't drop their tools. And later investigators calculated that if they had dropped their tools, it might've made the difference between life and death. And this is not unique to the Man Gulch fire. This has happened in other wildland firefighting events as well. And that's another missed opportunity for rethinking, right? To say, okay, normally I think about my tools as part of my identity as necessary to doing my job. But here, my tools might actually be what stands between me and survival. And the inability to rethink that assumption, which was so ingrained in their training, right? Firefighters are taught that you need your tools in order to be effective and safe. Uh, I think that was the second missed opportunity. And I really, Tim, I was going to stop there. And then I read an article that led me to rethink a third assumption that I didn't even know was part of the equation, which is it turns out that wildfires are part of a healthy life cycle of force. And that assuming that, you know, that there's nobody in immediate danger, which there wasn't in Man Gulch, they don't necessarily need to be fought at all. And so I think there was a, a missed opportunity for rethinking at the level of the profession in the field to say, you know what, sometimes we send in smoke jumpers and firefighters to solve a problem that didn't actually exist. So the reason I, I find that really compelling is because you described three different types of rethinking. And I think you could say these are actually quite different cognitive processes. So the firefighters who didn't drop their tools because the tools were part of their identity, that's kind of a sort of tunnel vision. It's something they could do that's pretty obvious, but they're, they're panicking, they're in a hurry, and they just don't think of it. The idea of setting an escape fire, that's, as you described it, it's this brilliant piece of improvisation. It wasn't taught in textbooks. It wasn't like this is part of their cognitive arsenal. If, if only they could think of it, it was a piece of brilliance. And then the third thing that you've described is some committee somewhere decided that it's a good idea to drop firefighters into danger to fight wildfires despite the fact that the wildfires aren't actually posing anybody any danger because they think that's a good way of managing forests. And at some stage, some committee somewhere finally decided maybe this is not the right way of doing it. So these are different processes. I mean, how would you, which do you think is the most important or how would you distinguish between them? Oh, that's a great question. I reserve the right to rethink my answer because I haven't put <laughs> enough thought into this yet. But when I was writing the book, I felt like there was a tension between rethinking your knowledge, rethinking your assumptions, rethinking you know, some institutional traditions and practices. And I think you're right that they, they might involve different kinds of cognitive skills. I think they, they share something in common, right? Which is to have the humility to know what you don't know and the curiosity to go out and discover new things. And I think that it's hard to say which of that set of skills that you're distinguishing between is most important. I think it's probably gonna vary by person, by context, maybe by, by point in time as well. But What's bothered me the most um, when it comes to the failure of people to rethink over the, the past year is, is the, the questioning assumptions, right? Um, assumptions that you might not even realize you hold, but when they're challenged, uh, you, you resist. And the clearest example I can think of for this is a few years ago, I went to a bunch of CEOs and said, I would love to run a remote Friday experiment. I want to test what happens when people just work one day a week from anywhere. Let's get the productivity and the creativity effects of that. And all the CEOs turned me down and they said, we don't want to open Pandora's box. We're afraid no one will ever come back to work. Uh, we think our culture is going to fall apart. There are a bunch of assumptions there that should have been tested and worked. Some of those CEOs have now declared we're going to be a permanently remote office, right? And they missed the opportunity to learn all of 2018 and 2019 how to make remote work work. And what I've said to them since, at least the ones that I've gone back to is, look, I'm not saying that I was right and you were wrong. 
What I'm saying though, was that this was a great opportunity to run an experiment. You never would launch a product without A-B testing it. So why are you so convinced when it comes to the way that you work and collaborate and manage your culture that the way you've always done it is the right way? The A-B testing that, I mean, I'm all in favor. I think it's wonderful. Uh, that, that's often takes place within a little box. I mean, this is, this is the, the problem you're describing. So like, there's a place in it. I mean, some organizations would never experiment about everything. It would just be hippo, you know, the highest paid person's opinion. But a lot of organizations would say, well, we're experimental. We, we, you know, we gather data, but it's within this little box. And this is where the experiments are allowed. And then outside that box, the experiments are, are not allowed. So it's, I mean, why is that? Why is that? I think, I mean, the psychological explanations that I think are most compelling are one, a sense of predictability and control, right? I, I want to know where my job is going, where my organization is going, where my life is going. And if I'm willing to experiment with too many things, then I'm opening myself up to a lot of uncertainty. And especially in the US, many of us are bad at tolerance for ambiguity, right? It's, it's almost that we would have certain but wrong answers over uncertain but possibly right ones, because that gives us the comfort of conviction and allows us to avoid the discomfort of doubt. I think the, there are other factors that are more social, uh, which have to do with belonging. So, you know, I think there's, there's a latent fear that a lot of people carry around that if I question, you know, a bunch of, of behaviors or habits or, or customs that a lot of people are comfortable with, that I'm going to be excommunicated from my group uh, or that people are going to reject me or exclude me in some way. And I think that, that leaves us, leads us to prefer stability over change, which obviously in the long run is a bad habit. Something you said a moment ago, you were talking about the, the people who, it depends on the person and it depends on the situation. You know, the ability to rethink depends on the person, depends on the situation. I don't know what the question I've got, but I, I, I want to know more about that. Like, are there certain situations like a global pandemic that forces us to rethink? I mean, other examples I've studied myself, I, I love the example of Keith Jarrett having to play a jazz concert with a piano that turned out not to work. And it turned out to be his most popular concert. Or there was a tube strike in London a few years ago and at the end of the tube strike, 48 hours, a whole bunch of commuters never went back to their old commuting routes because they discovered a different way to get to work. And they realized they'd been doing commuting wrong their whole lives. So there's, there's a situation where it's the situation that forces the, the people to think again. But from reading the book, you seem to have a lot of faith that there are, you know, there are certain kinds of people who are you know, willing to think again and that, that also that, that can be trained you can encourage people to be the kind of person who thinks again, regardless of the situation. I think all of the above is true. So let's take this as a both and moment. I think, you know, situationally, I think you're onto something. The, the story that you've told about Keith Jarrett's unplayable piano is brilliant. And I, I don't think there's a week that goes by where I don't think about it, especially because I know nothing about music. And so I don't even know what it means to have a piano that, that doesn't play correctly. And so it's just, it's endlessly fascinating to me that you could do your best work on such a flawed instrument. But I think that speaks to something fundamental that we see in psychology, which is that constraints often push us to rethink, right? You would think it's, it's when we're doing well, when we're on top of the world, when we're at the very best of our game that we question ourselves. And I think with the danger of, of being in a position of, of excellence or of, of abundance is that we get complacent, right? We fall victim to the, cat, the fat cat syndrome and we like to rest on our laurels. It's when we're under pressure, under fire, uh, when we have no choice but to rethink, just like the pandemic has, has done for so many of us over the past year, 
that we, we finally say, all right, you know what? I have nothing to lose. And you know, now, now I really have no other choice. I think though that there are, to your point, there are people who are more inclined to do this um, and some people who are much less comfortable doing it. So this goes for me to Phil Tetlock's classic paper on, are you a preacher, a prosecutor, or a politician? And once I learned about this framework, I could not unsee it, right? I would find myself thinking like a preacher and basically believing I'd already discovered the truth and my job was to spread it. Just, um, just tell us a bit more about, the, about Tetlock's framework, because it is fascinating. Yeah, so Phil's, Phil's basic idea was that you know, too, too much of the time when we study in, in social science decision-making or judgment, we assume that people are, are like you, hyper-rational economists, and that they're always trying to maximize efficiency and, and you know, make the wisest choice. And Phil said, actually, no, we're much more concerned with the social implications of our judgments and our decisions than that. And when we form opinions, right, we, we want to think about, well, can I get other people to believe this, right? Can I, can I preach it? Can I serve Kool-Aid that other people want to drink? And then on the flip side, the, I think my biggest advice in this framework is being a prosecutor. When somebody believes something that I think is wrong or inconsistent with strong evidence, I feel like it's my job to correct them. And that never goes well, but you know, I'm, I'm sort of there trying to win an argument and you know, make sure that they lose their case. And my worry there is that if you spend a lot of your time preaching and prosecuting, you're not willing to change your mind because as a preacher, I'm right. As a prosecutor, you're wrong. And that means you need to do all the rethinking. I'm already enlightened. And then the third mindset that, that I think sort of leads us astray is thinking like a politician which is I'm trying to appeal to an audience and win their approval. So I'm going to do all the campaigning and lobbying that I can to get them to like me or agree with me. And I might tell them what they want to hear, but I may not change what I think deep down. Um, and I think that the people who spend a lot of time in these frames of mind, who do a lot of, of preaching, prosecuting, and politicking, they limit their own ability to question their assumptions and to second guess their knowledge. So, what you said leads us into, I, mean, I want to talk about Phil Tetlock some more because he's a very interesting guy. He's the super forecasters guy. He's a colleague of yours, I think, right? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, very, yeah. So let me put a pencil in that and, and, or a pin in that and we'll, we'll come back and talk about Tetlock. But I wanted to ask you about debating. In your book, you, you present quite a positive view of debating. You describe it as being akin to dance at its best. Okay, now, sorry, I should declare an interest. Adam, you are talking to the uh, 1992 World Schools Debating Champion, okay? I used to be good at this stuff, and I'm extremely jaded about it. You know, I'm like an, I'm like an ex-smoker. I'm an ex-debater. I, I feel very negative about it, and the reason I feel negative about it is because I feel it doesn't bring the best out of us. It doesn't encourage good faith argument. It encourages uh, my side, your side, by design, the in-group, the out-group. Uh, a lot of debating is performing to your own side, mocking the other side. This is certainly how debating works in the UK. You just look at presidential debates, even when presidential debates are working well. Uh, forget the last, the last two presidential elections, go back to you know, presidential elections for you know, 2012, 2008. You just think this is not the engagement and the clash and refutation of ideas that debating aspires to be. So, you know, am I too negative about it? Can we do debating better in a way that really brings out, you know, it helps us to rethink? Well, should we debate this? I think we are. 
So I'm a hypocrite already. I mean, really, I, I'm, I'm going to win either way, Tim. No, I, <laughs> I, I don't think the goal is winning, right? I think the goal is learning. And I think that the, the way you pose this question is interesting because you, you basically just asked me if you should rethink your rethinking of, <laughs> of debate. And I, I do want to applaud you before I answer your question, because you have all the incentives in the world to be invested in debate as an art form because it clearly worked for you. And I don't see that many international debate champions who say, you know what? decided this is the wrong set of rules and I don't want to play the game anymore. Uh, so I, uh, I, I really admire that. Um, I think, look, I think a lot, of, a lot of Think Again is about complexifying where people cling to simplicity. And I think that debate is a double-edged sword. Uh, I think there are, there are things that I love about the form of argument and there are things that I think are problematic. And so maybe we can break down some of the upsides and the downsides and figure out if it's possible to get the good without the bad. How does that sound? That sounds great. That sounds great. So do you want to, get, do you want to go for the upsides first or shut? Yeah, I'll, give you an up, I'll give you an upside. Okay, here's the upside of debating, okay? Uh, debating carves out an equal amount of time for everybody. Uh, you don't get the middle-aged white guy in a suit talking over other people, at least in a formal debate, like a school's debate or a university debate. Everybody gets the same allocation of time and they, they can't, you can't be silenced by, by just interrupting. Not just on stage, right? But also in prep time. Everybody is, it's a level playing field from the start, which, which I think is great. So I agree with that. I'll, I'll add a second upside uh, and look at us building instead of debating. This is like an improv yes and game. Yeah, yeah I'm, uh, just, I'm, just, I'm just waiting and then I'm going to take you down. Don't worry. Oh, I'm, I'm ready to take down your takedown. <laughs> Try me. But, but a second upside, I think, is that debate encourages people to have task conflict, not relationship conflict. In other words, to duke it out intellectually as opposed to taking it personally or emotionally. Um, there's evidence Corinne Bendersky did these, these cool experiments where just saying, can we debate as opposed to I disagree is enough to activate this mental model of saying, oh, you know what? We can, you know, we can sort of really challenge each other. At the end of, of, the, of the debate, though, we're going to go out for drinks and we're still, we're still on good terms. So I think that's a, a possible second upside. Yeah, I agree. And I think the, where the possible source of disagreement is, or maybe you would agree, I don't know, is what do we count as a debate? So in, it, when we think about high school debating, yes, we, we switch to task conflict rather than relationship conflict. By the way, I found this, this was a, a new concept to me, and I found it really useful, the idea that you could be arguing over, you know, you're a crappy person versus, uh, you know, we disagree about this task, and, but we respect each other. And these are two... They're both conflict. They're totally different, and you need to distinguish between them. I found that really useful. But so at its best, debating is about task conflict. But when I see debating in the real world, and by the real world, I mean the Houses of Parliament. I mean politicians on panel shows. I mean uh, cable news. I mean Twitter. I mean like anywhere where you might actually find it, including newspaper columns where people set out their views. I actually don't see this you know, informed engagement, what I see is people, you know, being rude, throwing insults, uh, making jokes, making really cheap points. And that's because the you've got the same formal structure of debate, but you put it into this new environment where, in fact, what is rewarded is, is not good faith behavior. Yep. So, may, may, so maybe what I'm saying is I hate all aspects of a modern media ecosystem. And unfortunately, you know, debate has placed itself in the middle of that and, and is... Have I convinced myself debate, debate is not to blame? That's interesting. Well, I, I don't have to do any of the rethinking for you then because you, you just did it out loud. But I, I, I do want to double click on something you just said, Tim, which is 
I think the biggest problem with, with debate outside of a formal school context is that people don't agree on the rules or the standards of, of evidence or truth. Right. So one of the reasons that debate works when we do it in school is everybody has bought into the same set of, of ground rules. And they also, you know, there are some objective standards of evidence, right? There's some usually some neutral third party facilitators or moderators or judges involved too, right? Whereas I think in the real world, you're only judged by whether you're, you know, you're, you're scoring points with your tribe uh, or, you know, or owning or de- demolishing the other side. And I think, I think that's obviously a problem. I think though that there are models for how to do debate in the real world. And uh, I think it's not a coincidence. They're not governed by the media ecosystem. Uh, yeah. They're governed by scientists. So one of my favorite forms of debate that I think has actually led to remarkable scientific progress is where you identify a, a major scientific controversy where, where people disagree on something. And I'll, I'll give you a, a, an example from my world of organizational psychology. Back in the 1980s, uh, there were these competing findings that kept coming out about when you set goals for somebody, do you need to involve them? Do you need to give them a say in what their goals are? And the data coming out from the US uh, were showing that, you know what, if you give people a goal, they will, they will get fired up about it and it doesn't matter whether you give them a voice or not. In Israel, the finding was consistently the opposite, that you had to give people a say in order for them to buy into the goal. And so there was this debate about, are there cultural differences or you know, is one set of studies flawed? And the researchers involved had the, the wisdom and the humility to come together. I think it helped that they had a common mentor uh, who said, you know what, instead of just debating, why don't you design a joint experiment, a series of joint experiments to resolve your debate? And it turned out when they did that, when they actually had to collaborate to figure out why they were on opposite sides of this issue, uh, they discovered, I think it was 18 or 19 different differences between their experiments. And the big one that really mattered was in the US, there was a tell and sell approach. So I'm giving you the goal and I'm saying, hey, Tim, this goal is really important. Here's how it's going to benefit other people. um, And I'm really getting you to care about it and creating a sense of purpose around it. Whereas in Israel, it was just, hey, here's your goal. And then in order to get people to, to really invest in it, they, they had to, to get a choice about what, you know, what level they set and why they were pursuing it. And I think that, that too often debates stop at, at people just making arguments. And what we should do is sit down and say, all right, you know what? We have different views on pick your hot button issue, whether it's climate change or abortion laws. Let's sit down and try to write a joint resolution together. And then maybe we can start to resolve some of our differences of opinion. Yeah, that's a good point. So... Can we talk about Tetlock, Phil Tetlock? So he's the super forecasting guy. Uh, he's you know, one of my favorite social scientists. I, think I find him absolutely fascinating. And his most famous result is, turns out people aren't very good at forecasting. And his second most famous result is, uh, the people who are least bad at forecasting are, are very intellectually humble. They seek out lots and lots of different pieces of information. They update a lot. They enjoy task conflict. They enjoy these adversarial discussions. And one, which I'm very much in sympathy with the idea of your book, one thing that one fairly recent Tetlock result is with, with Hal Arks, I think, and Barbara Mellors, is that if you ask people to participate in a forecasting tournament for about six months, you get them to make forecasts for a while they start to moderate their political views. They start to have more favorable views of uh, opponents. They see things in terms of shades of gray. I expect you're familiar with the result, but, uh, but I mean, wh- wh- what do you think is driving that? Why does, why does participating in a forecasting tournament for six months have these effects on our, our, our you know, cognitive styles and our politics? 
Such an interesting question. I actually want to have two conversations uh, based on what you just said, but I'll start with the question and then I want to broaden out to, to something that struck me about the, the way you, you even framed the research in the first place. So when it comes to why practice at forecasting seems to, to get people to be more open-minded, less polarized, more flexible in their thinking, uh, I think that, that most of what's going on is that people are getting feedback. And the vast majority of the time when we form opinions, uh, we don't find out whether we were right or wrong. And if we do keep score, we're basically only telling the points where we were right and we're forgetting or, or rationalizing away all the times when we were wrong. In a forecasting tournament, you have to commit, right? You have to say, is Brexit going to happen or not? And then you have to put a confidence interval around it. And so you get that immediate objective feedback on not only whether your forecast was accurate or not, but whether your level of confidence was calibrated correctly. And so I think doing that repeatedly teaches you how often your strong opinions were, were way off the mark. And that encourage, encourages you to see more of those shades of gray. Um, I, it, it, it's interesting. We're, um, we're just getting ready to, to launch a forecasting tournament with Good Judgment, uh, Phil's nonprofit, uh, which is around Think Again. So anybody who wants to join us, uh, I'll be posting it in my granted newsletter uh, in the next few days. Um, but you're going to get a chance to participate. We're inviting super forecasters then to share their forecasts and give advice and feedback so that you can learn from people who do this well. And Tim, the, the thing that, that I thought was so interesting about the way you framed this, you said the people who are least bad at forecasting... <laughs> And if this is not the clearest American-British difference I've ever seen, right? We call them super forecasters. And here you are saying, well, let's just talk about the people who are least terrible, right? And I want to talk about how amazing they are. And it, it reminded me of um, a project I did in the UK years ago where I was, I was trying to get uh, engineers and salespeople at a tech company to, to figure out how to redesign their jobs around their strengths. And they just, there was a, it was almost a revolt. It was a mutiny. And they said, here in the UK, we don't talk about strengths. Like you Americans are so narcissistic and exuberant. And I'm like, no, no, I just want to know the things you're relatively not bad at or pretty good at so that we can bring those into your job more. And finally, one of the engineers said, all right, fine. If it helps you, I will make a list of my least weak weaknesses and I will call them strengths. <laughs> uh, what, what do you make of this difference? Why, why, why do you call them people who are the least bad at forecasting as, as opposed to people who are the best at forecasting? Yes, well, I don't... Uh, I don't think of it as being a cultural difference, but of course you never notice cultural uh, assumptions when you're right in the middle of them. But the reason is, I mean, I'm thinking back to, to Tetlock's earlier work in Expert Political Judgment, which is a wonderful book. It's properly nerdy. And in Expert Political Judgment, which he wrote after 20 years of running these forecasting tournaments, he basically concluded that no one can do it. And, uh, but some people are even worse than other people. And so when he looked at the people who, who struggle least with this task, which is, I mean, you could, in fairness, you could say it's a really difficult task. You're asking people to see into the future. Of course, nobody could do it. When you look at the people who are, who are least bad at it, it, women are slightly better than men. Optimists are slightly better than pessimists, but it's all marginal. And what he called foxes are quite a lot better than hedgehogs. And foxes, that, that sort of gestures towards this idea of cognitive flexibility and diversity of thinking and willingness to change your mind. And then he, he went on and did further, further research and he started talking about super forecasters. And to me, that is the only time in Philip Tetlock's life, as far as I'm concerned, that he's ever slightly overhyped something. Because it strikes me that, I mean, they're, they're, they're managing to achieve partial success at a nearly impossible task. And I suppose yeah. you could say there's a kind of super heroism in that. But I don't like the term super forecasters purely because it, it gestures towards omniscience 
and there's so much that nobody can know, no matter how good you are. Uh, I, I so that's, that's why such, I phrased it that way. That is such a compelling explanation. You're saying, hey, this is not a cultural difference. It's a, a statistical one, right? The base rate of success is so low that the people who are relatively good at it are still pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think that's a good case for rethinking the label super forecaster. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, I think, I think Don, Dan Gardner, his co-author, possibly persuaded him to use that. I don't know. Dan's great, but you know, he, he's a bit more gung-ho than Phil, is my impression. I, I think that might be a, an accurate hypothesis. We'll have to test it. Um, it also, it raises two things though that I think are, are intriguing about foxes, right? So when we think about foxes as, you know, as people who are open to many different kinds of ideas as opposed to just, you know, believing in, in one big truth um, or one core idea. Um, I, I was really tempted to, when I finished reading the early work that filled in on that to say, okay, you know what? I just always want to see the shades of gray. I always want to be cognitively flexible. And then, of course, because Phil is one of the most cognitively complex and flexible people I've ever met, uh, it turns out there are at least two risks of being too foxy uh, or too open to rethinking. The first one is that you end up, you know, just constantly equivocating and you never get heard, uh, right? Which is why we listen to too many hedgehoggy pundits on TV, I think. Um, the other risk, which, which doesn't get nearly as much attention, but shows up empirically, is that um, people who are hyper open to rethinking their convictions are sometimes too easily persuaded by things that are completely implausible, right? So one of the dangers of, you know, of doing really broad scenario planning is that if you're really open-minded, you might come to think that a, a very far-fetched possibility is, is actually pretty likely. And I was curious, you, you do this for a living, Tim. Uh, I was curious how you manage that risk. Uh, well, I mean, scenario planning or just forecasting. I don't. Well, I would I would say you could you could apply it to either, but I'm interested in the question of when you do open people's minds mm -hmm. and get them to think more flexibly. How do you set the boundaries so they don't start believing things that are just implausible? Mm -hmm. So, well, I mean, I used to be a professional scenario planner. We, I mean, this is a long time ago, and uh, it's a very very interesting job. And my impression was maybe it's because you're dealing with groups of people. But there was a there was just a limit to how far a group would go. And uh, maybe individuals would entertain crazy ideas. But in the end, you have to get a group of people to agree. And we would generally go for two scenarios. And they'd be they'd be sort of rich and qualitative and full of interesting stories. And you're talking about, say, you know, what is the future of uh, energy in Nigeria for the next 20 years? These are big, big questions. The problem that we had was that the scenario, one of the scenarios, one or other of them would generally start coming true before we'd had a chance to publish it. We had pushed people uh, to consider the possibility that they were wrong. We'd pushed people to consider different scenarios, but the risk of pushing them too far and entertaining weird stuff, it's not something I, I tended to encounter. It's, it. it's, inter it's interesting though, that we're thinking about scenarios, I think one of the reasons why they work is because you've entered this hypothetical space where you can disagree about stuff. And all you're disagreeing about is like a story about the future. Mm -hmm. and, where, and where's the threat in that? So a lot of the kind of the, the personal anxiety about being wrong disappears. Uh, that resonates. I guess it, it makes me wonder then about the other point, which is I, one of the, the things that I, I came to think might be true <laughs> after writing Think Again is, okay, we should all try to think more like scientists, right? Don't let our ideas become our identities, treat our opinions as hunches or hypotheses to test, um, you know, run experiments in our own lives to find out why we might be wrong. But it seems like there are certain advantages of talking like a preacher or a prosecutor in order to get heard and be persuasive. And I tried to make the case in the book that, 
um, that that may work if the audience is already open or receptive, but that if they're defensive or resistant, that you actually want to talk more scientifically. And I was wondering what you made of that argument and whether you think I might have missed the mark. No, I think that it makes perfect sense. The challenge is knowing which audience you're addressing, right? And I think there's a, there, are, there are audiences who are, who are wanting to be motivated. You know, they want that. It's the locker room speech by the coach at halftime or whatever. It's Winston Churchill will fight them on the beaches or whatever it is. They're, they're, they're hesitant, uh, but they're willing, willing to be persuaded and they want to be, they want to be galvanized. And then there are people who are already digging their heels in. And when they sense that someone is trying to push them, uh, they just fight back. The, by the way, there is an interesting parallel. There's some research on graphs, whether graphs persuade people versus presenting data in tables. And my recollection of the research uh, is that uh, graphs are great if people don't have preconceived ideas, that people love graphs. But if people are already resistant to the idea, showing them a pretty picture doesn't help at all. If, if anything, it just sort of gets their, gets their hackles up even further. That's fascinating. It, it reminds me of uh, some Google engineers who said they were immediately suspicious of anything that was ever shown on PowerPoint because it was too slick and it was too simplified. They're like, show me your raw data. I want to go through all the rows and columns and see whether I can reproduce your analysis, which I think is a degree of skepticism uh, a scientist would welcome. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's intriguing. It is intriguing. I've been thinking about data visualization a lot because we've got a cautionary tales coming uh, about Florence Nightingale the world's great data visualization expert. And we, we managed to persuade Helena Bonham Carter to play uh, Florence Nightingale. And she's actually a distant cousin of, of Florence Nightingale. So I'm, I'm super into the data visualization space right now. I think it's- Ooh, I it's can't wait to hear this episode. It's, um, it's going to be cool. It's going to be cool. Um, let me pick up my phone because uh, questions have been incoming on WhatsApp. And so a question from Simon, doesn't debate- favor the middle-aged white guy. Uh, you've got a specific set of skills that are sort of taught in specific educational settings where privileged white men gather. I suppose in a way that's an attack on what I was saying, which is that everyone's equal in the debate. But I mean, let's broaden that out. Are there certain um, rules of engagement that we can adopt that, that favor different groups or that we might want to adopt in order to, to bring out different voices? Oh, that's interesting. I think, you know, in, in a debate, yeah, I would worry that like, I, I grew up in a, a middle-class Midwest U.S. town. I don't remember ever being invited to join the debate team, even as a white guy, right? So, yeah, I, my image of debate is, you know, sort of upper-class privileged uh, kids getting to, to argue about, you know, things that may not matter while the world burns. Um, so I think obviously open up, opening up access and making sure that kids have the opportunity to learn to disagree, to learn to argue, which, by the way, is my favorite thing about debate, right? that, that kids actually get comfortable saying, you know what, I can have a decent conversation with somebody who does not hold the same opinions that I do on everything. And I can maybe even try on somebody else's arguments uh, and make them convincingly as a way of practicing flexibility. I think, though, that where a lot of a lot of debate that I see in, in my day job is in meetings. And I think that, that too many meetings are dominated by the same voices, either the person with the most power, the, the biggest extrovert in the room, uh, the, you know, the white man with a lot of confidence, uh, not really asking who's competent. And one of the experiments that I would love to see more people running right now is in your next Zoom meeting, what if you just rotated who leads the meeting? 
Right? There, there's no reason why we can't try that. Um, it's a chance for other people to develop leadership skills. It's a chance to hear different voices. Uh, it's an opportunity to shift some of your norms. And one of the things that I've been doing with a bunch of teams that I've, I've been working with is just saying, you know what, as a leader, it's fine if you want to frame the discussion or highlight what the issue is that, that you want to discuss, but why don't you speak last? Why don't you go around the room and hear every other person talk first? And that way we're going to get that equalization of voice. And I think that that's something we should all be testing out. Is there, is there a risk to asking the leader to, I, I like the idea and I, I approve in principle, but the, the, the little part of my spidey sense says, now you're in this weird Stalinist world where everybody is trying to guess what the boss is going to say and no one's actually, no one's actually going to say anything at all. I suppose if, you, if your corporate culture is that toxic, then you've got bigger problems. Um, you just answered your own question. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think I did. So let me ask you a better question from uh, Anon, which is an interesting name, but Anon asks... Uh, if you could rethink, think again, what would be different compared to when you wrote it? I think, I mean, there's a lot because I turned in the book over the summer and, and finished the copy edits in the fall. So I've had plenty of time to, to rethink. I've also been getting lots of reader feedback and having so many fun conversations like this. I think one thing that I am rethinking now that I really was not even on my radar when I wrote the book is... Um, what's the best alternative to thinking like a preacher, a prosecutor, and a politician if you want to be open-minded? And I thought when I wrote the book that scientists was the way to go because the scientific method has, I think, been responsible for much of the most important rethinking in, you know, in the last at least, you know, I would say a few hundred years, right? If we think about evidence-based medicine um, and all of the, you know, the things we've been able to learn from actually accumulating knowledge with scientific tools. But I've been persuaded as I've talked to different people that sometimes the formality of the scientific method is, uh, is something that people think is out of reach for them. Uh, they think, you know what, I don't have a microscope or a telescope. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have a lab. I don't do experiments. And so I've been thinking, okay, do you want to think like a scholar? Is that the goal? Right, where your, your motivation is to learn, not to be right, uh, where your motivation is to, to seek the truth, not to believe you've already found it. I've even thought sometimes that what you want to be is maybe thinking more like an artist. And I, I guess there was a little hint of this in, um, what is it, chapter nine, when I wrote about how um, sometimes, uh, maybe it was chapter eight, um, that sometimes the emotions we feel are rough drafts. And that instead of framing them, right, we should do what artists do, which is to say, all right, let me, let me rethink this and then revise accordingly. And I think I would, if I were going to rewrite Think Again, I might try on more mental models um, in addition to scientists, as opposed to preaching, prosecuting and politicking. That suggests, I mean, there is a, there is a certain torture in writing a book, which is that you write it and then you go through this process of, of editing, which at first is fun. And then the copy edits are just you know, I wouldn't wish copy edits on my worst enemy. And then, you know, it all goes quiet. And then you have to start um, talking about the book, by which time you're probably already thinking about your next book. Uh, and you talk about it until you've said everything you can possibly say about the book. And then you have to start publicizing the paperback. I mean, I'm, I'm presenting it in a very negative light. And actually, I love writing. I've written nine books. I love writing books. So I shouldn't complain. But there is a certain you talk about sort of uh, cognitive entrenchment. There's, a, there's, a, there's an entrenchment of your ideas in this book. You set them, you planned them, I don't know, three years ago. You drafted it a year ago. You finished all the edits six months ago. And you're already, you're already thinking about stuff that you wish could be different. A book's the wrong format. 
Um, should it all be uh, should it all be talks? Should it all be uh, podcasts? Is there a better way to get your ideas across that allows you know more updating and editing as you go along? I'm gonna I'm gonna give you another both and reaction here, Tim, which is I, I don't think books are the wrong format at all. I think they're they're the best possible format for doing deep thinking. Um, the, you know, the, the quality of my thought when I'm writing a book is, you know, it's sharper, it's, it's more systematic, it's clearer than any other thinking that I do, because I have to wrestle with a big question or topic, I have to build a framework around it. And then I have to, I'm trying to essentially, I'm trying to build a forest, where I know what the forest is before I planted all the trees. And I think that that just requires, um, it, it forces a level of discipline to really make sense of the thing that you're trying to, to understand in a way that I've never had to do when giving a talk, right? Because it's, it's easy to, to get away with a little bit of, um, of fuzziness uh, by telling a captivating story or mm-hmm. making some entertaining jokes. Um, in a podcast, right, you get the dynamism of the back and forth. And so I don't have to have worked out that much yet um, because I'm going to learn during the conversation. Whereas to, to produce the book, I have to have figured something out, right? So to me, the, the book is the beginning of conversations. It's not the end of them. I think it's such a privilege to have a chance to share ideas that I love and for them to keep on evolving. I, I, last time I checked, that's called learning, right? Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's part of the fun of doing this. But I think I think you, you hit on something really powerful, which is there's a part of me that wishes that as soon as I finished a draft of the book, I could then go on book tour and then I could do all the, re- the revising and rethinking before I turn it in. And sadly, publishers don't work that way. But how much better would our books be if they did? No, it's really true. I, I won't name the author because it's unfair, but I remember once seeing a talk uh, by an economist about some really interesting ideas that he'd written a book about. And it was such a good talk. It was so compelling. The ideas were so original and just, I thought, this is amazing. I got to get this guy's book. And I got the book and the book was sort of wooden and the ideas were were not very well worked out. And I realized the guy wrote the book and after he'd finished writing the book, he figured out what he really wanted to say. And I think it was particularly extreme in that case, but I think all authors have that experience of, it's only when you get out there that you, you know, you realize, oh, hang on, there's a cleverer, more concise, more appropriate way of doing it. I wanted to ask Adam, and this is, I'm going to apologize in advance for the question, because if you were British, you would, uh, at this point, tear off the microphone and storm out. But because you're American, I think you'll tolerate the question. So your, your books are, if you don't mind me saying so, very good. Your TED Talks are very good. Right. Your pod, your podcast is your work life is fantastic. It's great. Um, your uh, apparently you keep winning these awards for your academic teaching. Uh, I'm not qualified to to judge your skill as an academic. Uh, you seem to be doing fine. So, do you think that the podcast, the the talks, the the teaching, the books are they basically the same skill, or or are you actually you know are perfecting different skills in these different mediums? Um, I think that there, there are some common skills and some different skills. So I think the common ones are, you know, loving ideas, being obsessively focused on a project or a task until it's done. Um, and wanting to, I, I don't think, I think one of my biggest limitations as a, as a researcher has been, I don't think my ideas are very original. Um, I think my first instinct is always when when I have a question to go in and accumulate everything that's ever been known about that question. 
And for a long time, I thought that meant that I was never going to contribute to the field. And what I've realized now is, well, there's a there's a different creative skill, right? It's it's not the same novelty or eureka moment, um, but there's a different creative skill in synthesizing all those different perspectives and creating mm-hmm. a framework to organize them. And I think that's something that that I do comparatively well, and it's it's something I try to bring to all the different uh, the all the different media. I think though that the the biggest difference across these is, I think. I don't know. I, I feel like it's it's easy to be an effective author and also an effective teacher and speaker um, as a human jukebox, right? Where you have some some go to stories and data points, and you're good at regurgitating those when people say, you know, give me your greatest hit. Um, and podcasting has zero tolerance uh, for that set of tendencies, right? And it's what I love most about podcasting is um, it's an excuse for me to go out into the world and learn and say, yeah. who are the people, what are the places that that I think can teach me something? And that way I get to be learning with the listener as opposed to, you know, just doing all the teaching to the listener. What role does empathy have in productive rethinking? I think it's it's critical to helping other people do their rethinking and, and skip to chapter seven of Think Again for more on that. Uh, for our own rethinking, I would say it's probably more about self-compassion uh, to, to not beat yourself up about, you know, the times when you were wrong or the mistaken beliefs you held, but to distance yourself from those events and say, look, you know what? I didn't know as much as I do now. I was not as intelligent as I am now. And so I didn't really know any better at the time. And I think that that makes it easier to get away from the ego that's pulling us back to our convictions and toward the learning and curiosity that, it, that allows us to evolve. A question from Helen. Fantastic question. How would you teach a child to keep an open mind? Well, we, Allison and I have been doing, trying to do this with our kids. And I think my favorite thing that we've learned is that it's really helpful to tell them how often you are wrong. Uh, our kids thought it was hysterically funny that we learned growing up that Pluto was a planet. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's obviously not a planet. We learned about it in science. I was like, you know what? Not only was was I wrong about that, and I was sort of an astronomy geek, and I thought I knew a little bit about it, but I was really upset when I found out Pluto was not a planet, and I had a hard time accepting it. And you know, allowing them to see those moments and see us laughing at ourselves in those moments just is is a simple way of conveying, you know what? As knowledge evolves and the world changes, you want to be receptive to discovering all the delights that come your way. Uh, it, it is amazing the human capacity to hold on to stuff you learned between the ages of five and 15. But really extraordinary, I think. Yeah, there's a joke about it in the book. Um, speaking of your, your children, am I? Did, did, I, did I dream it or is there, a, is there a family story behind this? Yeah, we were trying to come up with a cover for the book and there were all these optical illusions that just didn't work. And we wanted something that would make you think again. And I was, uh, I was talking about it one day and our, our 12-year-old daughter, Joanna, said, well, what if you had a, a candle or a match with, uh, with water instead of fire? Yes, that's it. And it even relates to the firefighter story in the opening of the book. This is perfect. So I have, uh, since then, I've, I've completely rethought where I get all my ideas. Now our, our kids are the first place I go. Yeah, I'm still astonished. This is a terrific cover. Uh, I need to get my children working harder for me. Um, so, uh, <laughs> um, so another question. It seems like this book and your recent work has come from quite a personal place driven by a need to look out to fix the world. So what, number one, what really keeps you up at night? Number two, what keeps you hopeful? 
all my work has come from that place, but I've definitely shown more of the behind the scenes in, in this book than I did elsewhere. And it's in part because of a lot of feedback from readers wanting to know more, you know, okay, don't just tell us other people's stories and cite studies. Um, tell us how you've grappled with these things. And like, at, at first I thought it was kind of narcissistic to put myself in the spotlight. And then I realized, no, this is a perfect opportunity to, to try to model um, the openness that I'm, you know, I'm exploring and, and writing about is to say, look, here are times when I was wrong and here are things that I, that I should have changed my mind on sooner. Um, I think the, the things that keep me up at night are mostly people who think that they're being open-minded in questioning, you know, the mainstream media or the scientific establishment uh, and taking their rethinking in a direction that moves them farther from evidence and accuracy. It scares me. And I think it's, um, it's a problem that's contributing to most of the major problems in the world right now. I think what keeps me hopeful is, um, is students. Uh, every single time I walk into the classroom, I am blown away by the curiosity and the hunger to learn uh, that I see in students who are 20 and 21 years old, um, and even in our MBA students who are 26 and 27 year olds. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that, you know, it's, it's hard to interact with young people without saying, you know what? You're right. There are a lot of problems in the world, but that doesn't mean we should sit there and despair about them. Let's get off our asses and do something about them. Yeah, absolutely. So another question has come in that's quite, it's a, bit, a bit different, quite interesting. Um, so from Basil, Basil says, uh, when you think about work, and in particular, the changes brought on by technology and all the new tech-powered collaboration tools, what are your views on the potential dark side? I presume he means the dark side of tech-powered collaborations uh, tools rather than the dark side of work in general. <laughs> yeah. So are we talking about email, Slack, Zoom? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe yeah, yeah, whatever you think is most interesting. I mean, there are all kinds of tools. There's, you know, there's Facebook, there's, you know, there's, there's you know, what, what do you think? What, what are the dark sides? What are the advantages of these new tools? I think it's, it's too easy to blame, you know, all the problems on the technology or attribute all the benefits to technology, right? I think most of the questions about technology are, how do we learn to, to use the tools we have um, and obviously evolve the tools we have to try to, to, to use them for good? And, you know, obviously, I think it would be great if, you know, on whatever, whatever platform we're using, whether it's social media or any of your favorite communication or collaboration tools, if we could do a better job getting outside of our echo chambers and our filter bubbles. Um, you know, I think there are big questions to be answered about how we change algorithms to make that happen. And also, you know, what, what kind of regulation is necessary to try to facilitate that. I, as a psychologist, I think about this much more on a personal level and say, look, the first thing we can all do is pay attention to who we follow. And I noticed that I was following a lot of people whose conclusions I agreed with. And I didn't have that many people who were challenging my conclusions. And so I made an active effort to say, let me find people who, even though they often arrive at answers that are different from mine, I really, I respect the intellectual integrity of their thought process, right? I think they're, they're data-driven. I think they're interested in, in finding the truth and having good faith arguments as opposed to trolling or, or being in bad faith. And the more of those people that I've added to, you know, the, the folks I follow, the more I've learned about things that I don't know and the more flexible I've become in my own thinking. And I think that's, that's something we can all try. So you could use the tool in a wiser way. Absolutely. That makes sense. But is, might there be a better way to design the tools? And I mean, there's a, obviously there's a question as to who designs them and what's the profit motive and all that, but it was, 
something specifically uh, leapt to mind. You were talking about why don't we rearrange, reorganize the way we do Zoom meetings? Why don't we have a Zoom meeting where we rotate who runs the meeting? And it made me think, you know, a meeting around a conference table is a sort of a fairly fixed technology. You can bring in a facilitator to do things differently, but it's kind of, it is what it is. But you could change all sorts of things about how a meeting works on Zoom through just tweaks to the, um, you know, to the way the channel itself works. Um, so are there any opportunities there? Have you seen anything interesting, any particular tools that really help people? Yeah. Are you, or rethink? are you on Clubhouse yet? Uh, so I'm not, partly because I don't have an iPhone. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not interested in the Android boys. So, you can do it on an iPad too. But I, okay. I just did my first two conversations on Clubhouse. And uh, first of all, I just, I love whenever I can learn or engage without having to look at a screen, right? So the same way that podcasts have appealed, an audio-only platform, I, I just thought was an interesting thing to try. Yeah. But I think one of the things that Clubhouse has done that's really effective is they've said, look, when you enter a room, you're in listener-only mode unless the moderator invites you up onto the stage to have a yeah. microphone. And so the level of curation that happens there compared to Twitter, for example, uh, there's a dramatic difference, right? On, on Twitter, it's like anybody can walk into the town square and uh, voice their, their ignorant opinions, right? On Clubhouse, if you join a room and you've, you know, you've invested in somebody who's credible, who's thoughtful on the topic that they're speaking about, um, you're entrusting them to say, okay, let's, let's actually try to move a conversation forward here. Um, and I don't think that's always being used effectively, but it's gotten me really curious about well, where could we, where else could we apply that? Right? Yeah. What what other ways are you know are good moderators underutilized right now in the world? Oh, this is an interesting question. Uh, James asks, "Do you like to see scientists preaching or prosecuting?" <laughs> um. I think a little bit of it every once in a while is necessary. So if, if no scientist ever did any, <laughs> any preaching, uh, I think we'd, we'd leave the book writing and the TED talk giving and the podcast hosting just to translators. Uh, and I think there's, I think we not only have a responsibility, but also an obligation to speak about and share about our work. Um, right, because the, the, there are always things lost in translation. There are always games of telephone played, um, and I know I learn different things from hearing from the source than I do from the person who's the intermediary. So I think that a little bit of that is necessary. I think that as a, as a, as a social scientist, I slip into prosecutor mode a lot when you know when I think somebody is using shoddy research methods or when somebody is promoting snake oil, and I think that thoughtful criticism is necessary, but I can still do that more like a scientist, right? You don't have to write a takedown um, that insults the other person's intelligence. You could say, here are the methodological standards that, uh, that I uphold. And here's why I think this particular study fell short of those, right? Or this program of research didn't live up to those. And so I, th I still think we can, um, I guess I would say it's, pro it's possible to prosecute flawed work uh, without taking the tone of a prosecutor. Yeah. Absolutely. It is interesting when you see scientists that are engaging in, in the debate on Twitter or whatever, and some of them are incredibly good at, at just playing the scientist and wep almost weaponizing that. And the fact that they never get dragged into the mud fights and they always just bring the data is incredibly powerful. Most people sooner or later lose their temper on Twitter, but not, not everyone, not everyone. Um, Maybe this should be the last question, depending on how interesting you, uh, you, you find it. But um, the question from Tati 
Otati in uh, Brazil. And they ask how Adam reacts to uncertainty or conflicts, specifically when he's under pressure. And what is his suggestion uh, to change behaviors and habits in order to create a, a lifelong learning mindset? So there are really two questions there. What habits should be changed? And, but how, the one that really interested me about that was how do you react when you're under pressure? It depends a lot on what kind of pressure we're talking about. So I think if the, if the pressure is to prove myself, the mistake I've made a lot is I've spoken with too much certainty uh, and too much conviction. And often, you know, that's, I hope, the product of you know, the scientific process of saying, look, I wouldn't put an idea out there um, and advocate for it strongly unless I was either you know, extremely impressed by the evidence behind it or thought that the evidence went, went so against conventional wisdom that I thought it was an opportunity for people to think again. And I think in many situations, I've overcorrected on that. And yeah, I, I find that somebody doesn't buy my argument and I have, you know, I'm now under pressure to back up what I've said. And I just, I dig in too strong and I go into this logic bully mode. Uh, I'm like, wait a minute, you didn't like my first three reasons? Let me give you 17 more. And here are a bunch of journal articles, go read them and then tell me that you realize you were wrong. Um, and I always regret that when, you know, when I end up in that mode. And so I think the way I'm trying to respond now to pressure is with curiosity. Uh, mm -hmm. When you know, when I when I feel uncertain about one of my own arguments, or when somebody challenges my data, to say this is like, this is an interesting opportunity to learn or discover something. And I realize how fortunate I am to be in a job and a field and a place in my career where that you know the threat might not be the first reaction. Um, but I think it's. Something I want to do more often is to say, like, I've, I, I did this recently. Uh, somebody was, I, I, was, I was talking to a, an organization about some, some research and wanting to do an experiment there, and they just completely dismissed my data. And in the past, I, you know, I would have just started arguing with them and trying to sort of intellectually beat them up uh, and win the debate and score every point I could. And I, I finally remembered to say, like, what? I'm sorry. I just, I just have to ask you, it seems like you don't buy any of my evidence. Why in the world did you invite me to have this conversation if you don't find my work to be worthwhile? And I'm genuinely curious, right? I want to know the answer to this. Like, that's what the scientist in me would do. And I think remembering to do that and finding a way of, of asking those questions, it's an incredible learning opportunity, regardless of what happens. It also, it's a way to step out of the conversation and say, let's have a conversation about the conversation. Like, what, what are the terms of this engagement? What are you actually looking for when we have, you know, we, when we have this collaboration on the table? And I, I, have yet, I have yet to regret having that discussion, but yeah. I haven't tried it enough yet to really have good data. So I, I absolutely agree. I mean, my, my own book has got 10 rules. Uh, and, and then at the end of the book, the golden rule is curiosity. You can ignore the, all the other 10 rules if you're actually curious and you're genuinely open-minded. It's, it's such, a, I think such a positive way of approaching the world. But I just wanted to, to amplify the question a little bit. Uh, talking about dealing with real uncertainty. I think, think back a year, so a year ago, exactly a year ago, all of us were suddenly realizing, hang on a minute, this could be real. This is actually happening. Italy's in lockdown. I mean, fine, China's in lockdown. China's a you know, very, very long way away, but Italy's in lockdown. Suddenly Spain's in lockdown. Suddenly New York's in lockdown. There's deep uncertainty about everything. Everything's been turned on its head. All your speaking gigs are canceled. You're, you're, the bookshops are all closed and you're writing a book. 
Was there anything you've learned in writing the book that you found, because you were halfway through the book at that point, I'm sure, um, that you found useful at that moment? Yeah, there was. I think for me, it was, it was an excuse to try to take a long view and do a little bit of forecasting. Uh, so I tried, to, I tried to make some predictions about what I might be rethinking by the time that the book came out. And I got some of those things wrong. Um, I was closer to the mark on some of them, but it was a good reminder for me to say, okay, uh, part of the reason that, you know, honestly, Tim, part of the reason that, that the pandemic has been as awful as it's been is a lot of people didn't want to believe that we were, first, that we were going to face it, right? Then that COVID was going to be as deadly or as transmissible as it's been. Then that the, you know, the pandemic was going to last as long as it did. Um, you know, we could add in masks and all sorts of other, you know, things that people questioned along the way. And I think that what I found helpful while writing the book was saying, okay, uh, if I had a time machine uh, and I could go back to the pen, the last pandemic. So if I, let's say a couple of years before, if I could go back to 1915, what are all the things that people would have been extremely confident in, even certain in that just five years later, they all would have thrown out the window. And there's a version of that, that I'm living right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be that idiot. Right? I don't want to be that person who's so sure until I find out everything I assumed was wrong. And I think that that idea of mental time travel has really stuck with me to say, and you can do this at any, any point in your life and with any point in history, right? I think often about the silly things people believed about science in the 14 and 1500s, the horrible practices like slavery that many people just didn't question in the 1700s, right? And I think that every time I look back and think about all of the, the convictions and beliefs that people made part of their identities in the past and, and how wrong or incomplete they were, I think, well, people are going to look at us one day and think we had silly beliefs. And if that's not an invitation to be open-minded, I don't know what is. Well, thank you, Adam. We should probably leave it there. Ho hopefully people are now mentally time-traveling back an hour and 10 minutes and thinking, if only we could start this conversation all over again and just have another 70 minutes of Adam dropping pearls of wisdom. I, you know, I've, read, I've learned a lot. I've had a great time. I hope, I'm sure everyone else has. Many of you have been wise enough to buy Adam's book. You should all buy it. It's terrific. He also presents the Work Life podcast, which is fantastic. He has a newsletter. He's on Twitter, Adam M. Grant. You know, he's inescapable. He's like Thanos. You can't get away from him. Um, and, uh, and he's a lot more fun than Thanos. So, so Adam, Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Tim, this, is, this has been such a treat to do this with you. And I, I want to say anybody who hasn't read Tim's book, How to Make the World Add Up, if you're in the UK or in the US, it was called The Data Detective. It is, you will not find a more useful guide to understanding how to reason with numbers, make sense of statistics, um, and actually bring some clarity to all the data that are confusing us right now. Highly, highly recommend, as you can see, infinitely curious, um, endlessly knowledgeable. Uh, it's a book that will make you smarter. And Tim, I am just overjoyed that I get to turn the tables on you next month uh, and interview you about your book. Uh, do you want to tell us the details on that? Uh, yeah, so that is going to be, I think, March the 15th. Uh, and it's going to be well, well, with a sort of mountain time or something. I, I lose track. It's on my website, timharford.com. All the talks on my website. And uh, yeah, it's going to be great. Um, and I told you he was a nice guy. Adam, thank you so much. Thank you for the book. And uh, keep safe, sir. Well, thank you. And thanks to everyone for joining us today. Such a, a treat to have a chance to share ideas. And uh, I hope you all enjoy your weekends. And thanks to the How To Academy. This week's show starred Adam Grant and Tim Harford. 
It was produced by Luke Naylor Perro and myself, with editing by John Doughty. If you enjoyed it, tell everyone you know, and buy Adam's new book, Think Again, which is out now wherever good books are sold. Until next week, stay safe and well, and thanks for listening.